You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be blessed, and we're going to begin to look at exactly what it means to be blessed, um, what, how God exactly has blessed us. And so uh, I gave, uh, I handed out a sheet to several of you. I'm going to try to do this every week. We go over a lot of scripture references. Our belief is that the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. Um, is what I'm saying actually, can it be backed up in the Bible? And so I made a bunch of sheets uh, so that you can follow along with the verses. Uh, and you can <coughs> turn there if you want to. Or you can just listen. Um, I'll tell you the ones that I specifically want you to turn to. But once again, if you can't find them fast enough, you can just uh, listen in. So let's read this passage. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. This is the very word of God. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let's pray. And I'm going to do what Alan did last week, and I am going to borrow Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, and pray this for all of us. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. I pray that this is true today. Paul begins this amazing letter with a song of praise. After he gives the introduction, he just bursts out and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed means inherently worthy of praise. God is inherently worthy of praise because of who he is and because of what he has done and continues to do. And what he has done will be the topic of our next several sermons as we look through verses 4 through 14 beginning today. What he has done in general is told us in verse 3 where it says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is the overarching thing. God has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings. Well, what are those spiritual blessings? He will go on and explain what those are in verses 4 and following. But God's people throughout history, God's people in the Old Testament, they needed and wanted the blessing of God. I'm going to ask you to turn to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. It is the fourth book in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 6. God knew 
that the people needed the blessing of God. And so he commanded his priests, the ones who would intercede for the people, to God. He commanded them to give a blessing to the people. And here's what he said, beginning in verse 22, Numbers 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. So shall you put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, hopefully this sounded familiar to you, because this is really how we end most of our worship services, with what is known as the benediction, which is the blessing of God. You and I need this blessing. We need the blessing of God. And according to these verses, to be blessed means to have the Lord's face shining upon you in delight. It means for him to be gracious to you, to lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That's what it means to be blessed. This is what the people of God were looking for. This is what they needed. They, it meant to have God's favor directed towards you. Now, God's favor is manifest in several ways in the Old Testament. It was manifest in the, in the promise of a land where they could grow crops uh, to feed their families. It was manifest in a, in a wife who would bear many children. It was manifest in, in deliverance, uh, victory over their enemies. It was manifest in, in peace within their walls. And it was also manifest within uh, the, the sacrificial system that God gave them so that the so- sins of the people could be atoned for and that they could have a right standing before God. This is what it meant to be blessed. Sadly, if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would see that most of the people of Israel were looking mainly for the physical blessings of God, the material blessings of God, the, the, the fruitful land, the fruitful wife, the, the victory and protection uh, over their enemies. And they weren't looking for the spiritual. As a result, they downplayed the importance of the spiritual blessings. They missed the importance of the, the sacrificial system and its intents. And they began to just go through the religious motions. What do I need to do? I need to do this. And they would do that and just fulfill their religious duties with no heart in it. I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is near the, the middle of the Bible. You've got... Uh, Psalms, which is the longest book, and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, and you have Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. This first chapter, <laughs> the longest uh, uh, prophecy, it begins with a condemnation of the people for this very thing that we're talking about. They were going through the religious motions. Their hearts were not in it. And just be careful, right? Because we now, in 2020, we're, we're still capable of doing this. Here's what God said through his prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse 11, Isaiah chapter 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of fat, of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The striking thing about this passage is all these things that God is saying, I hate, I loathe, I despise, are all things that he commanded. He commanded these sacrifices, these festivals. But what he's saying is this, you don't even do them with a heart or a love for me. You're just doing them to do them to fulfill your religious duties and then walk away. Don't even bother. I'm not listening. I'm not looking. Don't even bother to do it. Their hearts were not in it. They didn't love God. They they wanted his blessings, but they didn't want to follow his rules. They wanted a land to dwell in, but they didn't want a God to dwell in that land with them, looking over their shoulders, holding them accountable. They wanted children, lots of children, but they did not want to be the children of God in terms of listening to him and following his rules. They wanted victory over their enemies, and yet they so desperately wanted to live in all of the sins of their enemies. Those very sins that brought judgment upon their enemies would be the downfall of Israel as well as they engaged in them as well. They carry these sins and this attitude into the first century when Jesus, their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah, finally came on the scene. Jesus totally disappointed them. Totally disappointed them. They were not looking for someone like him. And they weren't looking for someone like him because he uh, came and he was offering victory or freedom from the oppression of their sins when they wanted victory or deliverance from the oppression of the Romans. And that's not what Jesus was offering. I want you to turn to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, to see this fact. In John chapter 11, we have that amazing, amazing story where Jesus raises a guy from the dead, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. Uh, Decay had already set in. His body was decomposing. I mean, it was sealed. It was a done deal. And Jesus came, and he raised him from the dead. All right, this would be the most amazing thing. What is the response of the religious leaders? Well, beginning in verse 45 of John chapter 11, we have the response. It says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see that? He is raising the dead. He's preaching good news to the poor. Freedom from captivity. And what are they worried about? We're not going to have a place to live. The Romans are going to oppress us. The Romans are are not going to let us live in the freedoms that we want. 
Their focus was entirely on this life, its physical blessings. They had no future focus. Jesus could keep his salvation from oppression of sins. They just wanted salvation from the oppression of the Romans. That's what they wanted. They had forsaken the true blessings of God. To be blessed by God, as we've been saying, meant to have his face shining upon you in delight. Is this really what the Bible teaches? Yeah, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 31. We're going to look at a couple passages in Psalm because I want you to see this for yourself. Psalm 31, verse 16. <clears throat> Listen to this phrase that we'll see repeated over in these verses. Psalm 31, verse 16. He says this, praying to God, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Did you hear that? Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. I want you to turn over from Psalm 31 to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, verse 1. Psalm 67, verse 1. Repetition is the best, is a great teacher. And we see this not just talked about once. We saw it in Numbers 6. We saw the Lord's face shining on you. We've seen it in Psalm 31. And now Psalm 67, 1 says this, May God be gracious to us and Bless us and make his face to shine upon us. We see that again. Psalm 80, turn there one more. Psalm 80, and we'll be looking at verses 3, verse 7, and verse 19. Psalm 80, you can imagine God's face shining on you with delight, with, with, with pleasure, just, just excited about uh, you as his child. This is this, Psalm 80, verse 3. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Skipping down to verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then finally, verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. From these passages, we see that the blessing of God is linked with his face shining upon us in delight. And that blessing involves salvation, grace, and restoration. That's what it means to be blessed. If blessed means to have God's face shining upon you, then what would the opposite of being blessed by God mean? It would mean having God turn his face away from you. Well, does this bear up? I believe that the Bible does teach this as well. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31. I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's the fifth book in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Towards the end. Deuteronomy 31. Beginning in verse 17. Listen to this. Then, this is God speaking, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. You see that? God turning his face away. I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 27, verse 9. Psalm 27, verse 9. 
And as you're turning there, I'm going to read 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. It says this, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And then Psalm 27, 9 psalmist once again praying in desperation hide not your face from me turn not your servant away in anger O you who have been my help cast me not off forsake me not O god of my salvation from these passages what we see is that god to have god turn his face away from you involves being forsaken it means trouble coming upon you. It means your enemies coming and overtaking you. And it means having God's anger directed at you. Those are some pretty serious things. What that means, if you look in the Bible, is that means to be cursed. The opposite of a blessing is a curse. It is a curse. In the Old Testament, what we had is we had God who commanded the people to set up a tabernacle, which is where God would meet with the people. It's where the priests did their work. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the mercy seat was. And God's uh, physical presence, if you will, dwelt among that, uh, above that in the Shekinah glory. And then you have the tabernacle in the center. And then to the east of the tabernacle, you had three tribes. To the north, you had three tribes. To the west, you had three tribes. And to the south, you had three tribes, all surrounding the tabernacle of God as God dwelt in the midst of the people. And if someone sinned in a grievous way, they were told to be placed outside of the camp. Outside of the camp. God is within the camp was the implication. And to be outside of the camp meant that you are not in the presence of God. You did not have his favor shining upon you. You were cursed. God had turned his face away from you. And that's scary. Why is this significant? Why is this significant? And how does this relate to our passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4? Well, we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that to be blessed, that we have been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our blessing as followers of Christ can and does manifest itself in a, in a physical way, okay, in the material stuff that we have. But that's not the primary way that it's manifest in our lives. We are physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. And the physical, at least in this current form, will be done away with. These physical bodies that we are living in right now will one day be done away with, and we will get new spiritual bodies. They'll, they'll be physical, but they'll be a spiritual as well. And this earth in its current form will be burned up and a new earth will be recreated. So to have a purely physical mindset as if this world that we experience with our five senses is all there is, is the epitome of foolishness because it's all passing away. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, Paul said this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. If this is where our focus is, whew, you're in bad shape. You're in bad shape because this is passing away. Our blessings are mainly spiritual and they involve 
making us right with God so that we can have access to him and so that we can have a relationship with him. If God only gave us physical blessings in this life, then we would truly be able to gain the whole world, but then in the end we would lose our souls and we would perish in hell forever away from him because he just gave us the physical and did nothing to deal with the sin in our life. He didn't do anything to, to deal with the spiritual blessings. But God's blessings for us are of a more spiritual nature. You know what? I'm thankful for the income that I have. I'm thankful for the house that I have. I'm thankful for the clothes and the, and the possessions that I have. But I'm most thankful that God has dealt with my sin problem. And this is what we find in these verses listed in verses 4 through 14. And we're going to look at only one today, and that is absolutely monumental. Let me read verse 4 again. It says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This verse is loaded with truth. It is loaded with truth. And so I will try to break it down in a concise way. I want to start with that phrase, He chose us. He chose us. You and I, if you are a Christian today, you have been chosen by God. Now I am fully aware that humanly speaking, at some point in my life, I heard the gospel message and I received Christ. I made a commitment to follow Christ. I repented of my sins and asked Jesus to be Lord of my life. I am fully aware that from a human perspective, I did that. But the Bible is clear that the only reason that I was able to do that was because God chose me to be in Christ and enabled me to believe in him. And he did this long before I was even born. The phrase that Paul uses in our text is before the foundation of the world. So before there was ever a tree formed, or a fish formed, or bird, or any human being, God knew me and chose me to shed his love on me. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second, because that's some pretty deep stuff, okay? Uh, Does the Bible really teach this? And I believe that it does. We're going to do a little bit of turning of pages again, uh, working down our sheet. The first uh, place that I want you to turn to is Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And what we have there is we have Paul explaining the condition of fallen human beings. What our condition was before we were saved. And so here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? What is your spiritual condition according to this verse? You're dead spiritually. You are dead spiritually. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you this question. What can a dead person do? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Nothing, right? Nothing. A dead person can do nothing. They can't do anything. They can't respond. They, they, They can't do anything. Okay? They can do absolutely nothing. They can't reach out to God. They can't choose God. They can't even seek God. They can't do it. Okay? So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, points to this fact. 
It says this. Paul once again talking about the human condition. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Those are what are known as universal negatives. And they include everyone universally. This is everyone. No one is good. No one seeks for God. We were spiritually dead with no ability to reach out to God. And because of that fact, it had to be God who reached out to us. And the only way that we could respond to God's invitation to come to him is if he first gave us spiritual life and so, so that we could respond to that invitation. I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, because what we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is our spiritual conditions. You were dead spiritually, and you walked into the course of this world, following all these evil desires. That's what you did. You were by nature children of wrath. But he starts verse 4 with a wonderful, two wonderful words, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. Remember the story of Lazarus? Jesus comes to his tomb. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus gives the, the most outrageous command to a dead person. He says, come here. That's impossible because dead people can't do anything. The only way that Lazarus could have responded to that command is if Jesus first gave him life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave him life, and then Lazarus was able to respond to that command. This is what Jesus has, to us, has done for us. He gives us the command to come to him, but we cannot obey unless he gives us life first. Is this what the Bible teaches? I believe it does. And uh, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 44. <clears throat> Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And then he gets into this deep religious discussion about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And they're like, this is gross. What are you talking about? And so here's what Jesus says in John six forty-four. Listen to the universal negative again. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. You and I do not have the ability to come to Christ unless we have been raised up spiritually, which means that we have been chosen by him. To be chosen means to be selected out from among others. In less than a month, we are going to be engaging in an election where we are going to be choosing our leaders, our local leaders, our state leaders, and our national leaders. And we will be choosing them based on what we know about them, based upon their character, based upon their positions, based upon what they have done in the past. We will be choosing them based on those things. Now, I don't have time to go into it all, and I know this is a very controversial uh, thing, uh, but the Bible is clear that God did not choose 
everyone for salvation. I know it's a very hard thing. We can talk about that. Call me, email me, text me. We'll talk about it. But the Bible is clear that God did not choose everyone. And so the question is, and what I want to focus in on is us right now, those who are Christians. The question that, that I want to answer is this. Out of all the people in the world, why in the world did God choose me? Why did God choose you? Okay? That's a baffling question. Well, I think the answer is obvious, right? It's because God saw something good in us, right? God saw something uh, morally superior and intellectually superior in us than he did in the people that he didn't choose, right? No, I, I could barely get the, that out without laughing, right? Um, no, it, it's wrong. Y'all are like, oh my gosh, I'm out of this church, right? No. And you should be, right? Test the things to see if they're of God, right? No, that is completely wrong. That is completely false. All right, I want to share a couple of Old Testament scriptures with you and a New Testament scripture. I'm going to ask you to turn to the New Testament one, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. At least y'all are awake now, right? Um, The visitors were like, what am I getting into? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, verse uh, 26. I'm going to read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7 and then uh, from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 9 deal with God's choosing of Israel. Out of all the nations of the Israel, God chose, uh, uh, out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel. Why did he do that? Because they were powerful, because they were uh, morally superior to the other nations. Well, no, Deuteronomy 7 says this regarding God's choice of Israel. God speaking, he says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. He's basically saying you had no power, you had nothing desirable in you. God chose to, shed, uh, to, to give his love to you, not because of anything in you. Deuteronomy 9 verse 6 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Do you hear that? You're not morally superior. In fact, you're horrible, right? I mean, you guys, you mess up all the time. All the time. That's not why God chose them. Like, oh, oh, they're bad, they're bad. You're good. No. No, it was not. He didn't choose them for that reason whatsoever. First Corinthians chapter 1. Let's uh, read this and listen to uh, who God chose and why. This is you he's talking about, okay? So don't get offended. This is the very word of God. Um, so if you think that you're morally superior or intellectually superior to other people, this verse uh, is a reality check. Here's what it says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Uh, Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? You and I are foolish and weak and nothing. Jesus is all of these things for us. He didn't choose us because of our intellectual or moral superiority. In fact, if we truly understood who we were, and if we truly understood the God's perfect standard of righteousness, all of us would have to confess that we are no better than someone like Adolf Hitler. We are just as vile in the eyes of God. There is nothing in us that made God choose us. He just loved us and wanted us to be his own. Well, what was the purpose for which he chose us? Ephesians chapter 1 lists a whole bunch of purposes for which God chose us. We're just going to get into the first today with the time that we have remaining. And it says this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Once again, there is so much in this verse, so much. But I want to focus in first on that last prepositional phrase, those two words, before him. Before him. And I want to focus in on those two words because they are very, very important. And here's why. The world in which we live in has a standard and a definition of what it means to be holy and blameless. They have a standard of what it means to be right and what it means to be wrong. And the problem with the world's definition of holy and blameless is that it is completely opposed to God's standard of what it means to be holy and blameless. And it's no surprise that if fallen, sinful human beings start to develop laws independent of God, those laws are going to start out morally flawed and they're just going to get worse as it goes on. Evil cannot produce good. And that's what's happened in the world that we live in right now. Let me give you a couple examples. Talking about sex, God said, I'm going to give you sex in the confines of marriage as a good gift. But it can only be between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. The world says, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. One woman or one man my whole life and wait till I get married? No. Let's change that. You can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. And the world celebrates this in its music, in its TV, in everything. It's celebrated. That is the world's standard. And in fact, if you wait until you're married to have sex, you are laughed at. You're looked at as weird, right? Well, let's talk about marriage for a second. God said one man and one woman. The world says that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. If I, as a man, am attracted to another man, I'm going to marry this man, and that is good and proper. Or if you as a woman are attracted to another woman, the world's saying, if you want to marry her, absolutely, it's okay. And God says, no, it's not. The world has its standard of what it means to be holy and blameless 
before them. Let's talk about gender, right? Gender. The Bible says that he created them male and female. Two genders. That's it. The world says that's ridiculous. That's confining. No. The world says they shall be called cisgender, transgender, pansexual, heterosexual, heteroflexible, homoflexible, gender queer, sex queer, gender fluid, and a whole list of other things. Not just one gender. There are an infinite amount of genders. Let's talk about life. The Bible says that life is precious, that it's a gift from God. The Bible says choose life. The Bible says that God knit us together in our mother's womb and that we should do everything possible to protect life. The world says that's ridiculous. If this life growing within your womb is inconvenient, you have every right and it is good and it's right to terminate that life, to cut that life short. Get rid of it. You should do it. The Bible says not to get drunk. The world celebrates drunkenness as a badge of honor. The Bible says not to speak evil of others. And yet the world celebrates speaking evil. It, it celebrates slander. It, it, it celebrates gossip. So many TV shows are, are built around that. Politicians are engaged in it all the time. And we could go on and on and see how the world's standards of right and wrong are diametrically opposed to God's standards. Oh, I don't want to say that the world gets it wrong all the time, but the laws that they do have that are good and right are usually based on uh, Christian principles. But in these areas that we've listed and more, the world has set the standards. And not only does the world um, want you to accept that standard, the world wants to force you to adopt that standard as well. It wants you to, it's to force you to conform to that standard. You see, the world wants you to be holy and blameless before it, before the world. That's what they want of you. If you are holy and blameless, as the world defines it, then you will be accepted. You will. You will have the world's face shining upon you in delight. The world will love you. But if not, if not, then the world will cancel you. You will be condemned and fought against every step of the way. You will possibly be fired from your job for not using the proper pronoun that your coworkers or your students want you to use. If you have a business, there's a good possibility that you will be boycotted because you are hateful and bigoted. If you have a TV show, there's a good chance that you will be canceled because you have these, these, these archaic views of morality. You will be yelled at, you will be mocked by politicians and celebrities alike and a host of other things. They will turn their face away from you. You will be cursed in the world's eyes, all because you are not holy and blameless before the world. And for fear of being rejected, of experiencing the world's wrath, many seem to just give in, right? We give in. We can see the progression of our, of our nation. And even we as Christians can and are tempted to do this as well. And this is understandable, right? This is understandable. We're human beings too. We're fallen human beings. We, we feel pain. We feel the, the physical pain. We feel the emotional pain. 
We understand the importance of, 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 uh, of providing for our families, and if we lose our job because of a stand that we take, that, that's a scary thing. We don't want to be hated. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be fired. And so the temptation is to succumb to the world's standards of morality and to give in. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. This is what God has to say about the world's standard of morality. Okay? So if you're trying to decide, you know, which side you should be on, think about how God views the world's standards of morality. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, here's what he says. Woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Woe. Woe. That word woe means cursed. Cursed. So you could translate it this. Cursed is the one who calls evil good and good evil. To be cursed means to be separated from God. It means for God to turn his face away from you. And here's the bottom line, and I want you to listen to this, okay? As the world is is tempting you, as the world is putting pressure on you, here's the bottom line. If you are holy and blameless before the world as they define it, then you are not holy and blameless before God. Okay? That's very important to realize. If you are liked and accepted by the world, then you are rejected by God. Now, I know that's a very, very serious accusation. Is it true? I believe that it is. I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple passages. I want you to see this for yourself. The one that I'm going to ask you to turn to is John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 19. John 15, 19. As you're reading that... I want to read Luke 6, 26. I gave you that uh, sheet. Uh, You can check these out for yourself later on. Luke 6, 26, Jesus speaking. Here's what he says. Woe to you. There's that word again brought over from the Old Testament. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If the world loves you, if the world is speaking well of you, you better be careful because that's what they did for the false prophets as well. John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus speaking again, he says this, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. And let me give you just one more. This one is a punch in the gut. Uh, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 4. These are powerful words. Uh, Speaking to anyone who would want to conform to this world. Anyone who would want to love this world. Anyone who would want to be accepted by this world. James 4, 4. Using marriage language 
which God often does in the Old Testament and the New Testament. After all, we are called the bride of Christ. He is our husband. It says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty serious, isn't it? If we are holy and blameless in the world's eyes, then we're doomed. We are doomed. The truth of the matter is, is that you and I in this world may need to stand before the world and give an account for the moral standard that we hold to. And as we do give that account, there is a very good possibility that we will be mocked, that we will be yelled at, that we will be fired, that we will be ostracized, that we will be hated. But here's the greater truth, that one day, everyone, that's universal, will stand before God and give an account to God. And on that day, your job will not be on the line. Your social standing will not be on the line. Your TV show will not be on the line. Your eternal destination will be on the line when you stand before God that day. And which is why this first spiritual blessing that we come across in Ephesians chapter 1 is so very important. We have been selected out of the world to be holy and blameless before Him, before God. The one who made all things, the one who sustains all things, and the one who will one day judge every single person. Everyone who has ever lived will stand before God. And only those who are holy and blameless before him will hear those amazing, wonderful words. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Oh, I've been, up, I've been planning for your arrival. I have a beautiful place prepared for you. And those who have rejected Jesus, those who were right in their own eyes, who set up their own moral standard of what it means to be holy and blameless, will hear those terrifying words, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's all over for you right now. He chose us in him to be holy and blameless before him. Here's the wonderful thing about this, is it's a done deal. If you have given your life to Christ, it is a done deal. Come what may in this world, the greatest of times where you're on top of the world and everything's going right, or the worst of times where everything is falling apart, it doesn't matter because you are holy and blameless before him. And in the end, you will stand before him. You will be welcomed into his presence and you will be with him forever and ever with his face shining on you in delight. Nothing else matters. A place where there's no more pain or sorrow or disease or depression. All because he chose us and made us right in his sight. Like I said, this is the first of many reasons why God is inherently worthy of our praise. So what should our response to these amazing truths be? Well, I've already said it. Praise to God, right? If you and I truly understood this, we would be like, 
We couldn't contain it. I'll tell you what, when we were singing that song, Washed, it was overwhelming, right? And we're going to sing a song at the end, The Blessing. Whew, just going to prepare you. It's amazing. It's amazing because it's God's promises to us. We are to praise him. All because in the end we'll be fine. In this life we'll have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world and the sufferings of this present world are not worth being compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. But there may be some here today who are not Christians. And so you may be asking this very serious question, okay, I cannot choose God unless he has chosen me. I cannot, give the, uh, I cannot respond to an invitation of God unless he has made me alive. How do I know if I've been chosen? How do I know? Well, here's the simple answer. Do you feel yourself being drawn to him today? Are you understanding these truths and who you are before him? Do you feel a, a sense of love and worship welling up in you for Jesus and for what he has done for you? And do you have a desire to have all these spiritual blessings that we've been talking about applied to you? If you can answer yes, then I can assure you that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself right now. He has made you alive spiritually, and he's calling you into the presence of Jesus. And so all you need to do, as Second Peter 1.10 says, is this, is be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How do I know? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you know that you have been chosen by him, that he is the one who has given you life. Do this by embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1.30, he becomes your righteousness. And you become holy and blameless before him, fit for heaven. Remember how at the beginning we talked about the blessing and the curse, what it means to be blessed and what it means to be cursed? Blessing means to have God's face shining upon you in delight, and curse means for, for God to turn his back on you. You may be wondering how you, a vile sinner, can be holy and blameless in God's eyes. The last passage I want you to turn to is Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, because we have the answer there. And this is an absolute... Memorize this verse, because this verse is so monumental. You see, because you and I cannot fully obey the law of God perfectly, and we don't even come close. You know that. You know your life right now. You don't even come close to reaching his standard of morality. Neither do I. Because of that, you and I are cursed. God has to turn his face away from us. He is of too pure eyes to look upon evil. He cannot be shining his face upon us in delight. But listen to what this verse says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Did you hear that? Jesus became a curse for you. Jesus was willing to have the Father turn his face away from you and me. You remember when he was on the cross, those dreadful words he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cursed. He was forsaken by the Father so that you and I could be blessed and welcomed by the Father. So that the Father whose face was turned away from us could turn towards us because of what Jesus has done. And this is why in 1 John 3, 1, John says this. He says, 
Behold, look at this, examine it. What manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. This is too much. It is too much. Behold it. Jesus was willing to become a curse for us because he wants you to embrace him. If you haven't done it, do not leave here today without doing that. Don't do it. Talk to me, and I'll show you how you can do that. Let's pray. Father, we need to get this. It's, it's as simple as that. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And if there's anyone here today, Holy Spirit, ooh, give them no rest until they find their rest in you. Do it for your sake. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.